All right, uh, we're going to gather back together. Um, so if you can find your way back to your seat, that would be wonderful. Good morning. Um, it is a thrill to be with you. My name is Wally, if I have yet to meet you. Uh, by chance, uh, I have the honor and privilege of being teaching pastor for Walker Harbor and realizing this morning that I have had the last two Sundays in which I have not taught and I cannot remember the last time I've had two Sundays uh, in which I had not taught in that gap. So that seems kind of wild to me. Last week was a planned one. Uh, Sarah, so wonderfully and brilliantly, uh, was teaching last week and so grateful for her and doing that. And then the week before was unplanned, uh, as in uh, we were unable to gather here. So we moved uh, and just gathered at Harbor Life. And so I kept that teaching at th that was scheduled for that Sunday. I kept it on my computer until I think yesterday. I just had to do it and put it in a file of some other day, I guess. Um, because I kept it thinking, who knows? Maybe I'll show up somewhere and just open the computer and start talking. Um, uh, but um, I, I'm thrilled to be with you, and it was good to have those, those Sundays, though, to have a break. Last week, I had a surprise. I was not planning on it. I had a friend of mine who actually lives in the Bay Area of California, planted a church out there. Uh, uh, he was in town uh, teaching at a, a church he was at on the other side of the state, and he texted me kind of last minute and said, hey, what do you got going on Sunday? And I said, I'm actually, I am off. And he, uh, he's like, great, you want to go to a Tigers game? And so, uh, Detroit Tigers game. And here's the fun thing, I think about that. Years ago, I lived in California, and some of the families, I got to know families, and one of the families that I got to know, um, he married into that family, my friend, but one of, the, one of the little girl, I think she was like three when I was out there, uh, she has since gotten engaged to one of the pitchers for the Detroit Tigers who was pitching that Sunday. That's how we got tickets, is he's like, yeah, I'll just, I'll, I'll uh, call Gigi and she'll pull tickets. And we can sit in the Detroit Tigers, the family section. So we sat in the family section between or behind home plate. And uh, then we got to go meet Matt Manning, her fiance. I actually parked at their place. Just park there and we'll walk across to the stadium. I go, I had no idea what was happening. Fine, great. Uh, so I got to meet him. Uh, he's six foot five. She, who his fiance is six foot one. She was really good basketball player. So their kids are going to be tall. Um, say they have kids, um, but that, uh, that was thrilling, and I enjoyed the game thoroughly, uh, just sitting there. It rained, but it doesn't matter, because it was fun. Um, so that was, my, that was my Sunday last week, um, which was great. Um, anyways, we've got some things we're going to be diving into uh, this morning, uh, so I'm excited for that. We are actually wrapping up a mini-series, uh, but for those, uh, just to let everyone know, beginning in the, the, the last five weeks of 2021, we actually began a sinking into the gospel according to a young Jewish man named Matthew, and we started a, a time of sinking into the letter in which he wrote, uh, a gospel account, the autobiography, or biography, I should say, of Jesus, and uh, we set, started that, and then we've done a little mini-series throughout uh, this, just kind of themes within Matthew. Um, but 
by simply walking, I've loved this because simply walking with the life of Jesus, we have been confronted with the complexities and perplexities and the depth of life. It's been great. Uh, some things, love, devotion, trust, doubt, sin, the Satan, sacrifice, forgiveness, grace, divorce, death, and the fullness of walking in the kingdom of heaven is but a sample of what we've bumped up against just since we've started. Uh, so it's been lots of uh, joy and challenge, I would say, in doing this. Now, the last three weeks, we have dialed into uh, honest questions people ask. That's been kind of the subseries, questions that are in the text, questions that have been posed to Jesus, and we've been leaning into them. And to get at what those questions are specifically, this video uh, can help us sink into that. Been, uh, a joy to lean into those questions. We are going to finish off this mini-series today, and we're going to do so with a question that can either trip people up, or for some, I would guess, it fires some people up. We're going to lean into the question, what must I do to get eternal life? For many people, it is the question. Uh, it's the point, the drive, or the goal but before we get to the question, I want to give a, a little note and then a disclaimer and then some context, of course. Uh, but if you have only been with us more recently, uh, then you might be wondering why, if you've been tracking with us in Matthew, why it seems we're, we're jumping over the beginning of chapter 19 of Matthew. We are not. Um, we actually covered the section about divorce as a part of the section in chapter 5, uh, as a part of the Sermon on the Mount, we actually took those and packaged them together. We thought we'd bring it together, and we did a full teaching on divorce, and that was, I believe, back in February. So if that interests you, uh, just dig into the podcast, and you can go back and listen to that. So we aren't jumping over it. We just pulled it together back then uh, so that we're going. And then a disclaimer for this specific one, this teaching, as I would say, and none of them are, but this morning's teaching is not an exhaustive teaching on this topic, and it is certainly not one that is meant to end the conversation, but my hope is it begins a much larger conversation for all of us. My goal this morning is to help fill in some helpful context and address a rather large assumption 
and cultural understanding of this topic, then create some room at the end, just so you know, for questions and response. My hope is to move through this, structure it, so that we have time at the end uh, for, for you all to ask questions. If you want to ask a question that we can just kind of dialogue through briefly, um, I would love that. So uh, if you take notes, that's great. Good one for taking notes. If something write down, we will not put the camera on you, um, but we want to kind of capture questions if people have them for sure. Um, because when we're speaking of, which we'll be getting into, heaven, eternity, people often carry very strong feelings, strong emotions, and hope, which are beautiful, beautiful things. But I would simply want to offer some context, context asking what is behind the question in the text being asked, as well as why Jesus responds to the question the way he does, and what that has for you and I here today. So with that, uh, some context for us today. The context leading into the question is this. Matthew chapter 19, verses 13 and 15 is where we begin because this is the next movement in the text. Then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. When he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. Once again, Jesus uses the visual metaphor of children to highlight the posture of those who live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Humility, holding hands with awe and wonder. Humility, holding hands with awe and wonder. These characteristics shown to be the central, foundational pieces to the life of a follower of Jesus. A quick prayer. Holy One, gracious God, that even we would stop now and get this. Humility, awe and wonder, may they be found in us and through us as we approach you, think of you, worship you, and live lives that follow you. May we exude humility, awe, and wonder at your goodness, your grandness, and your immense love for us. Amen. Humility, awe, and wonder needed today? Yeah, I, I think so, and I think of this day, honestly, when I think of this, 9-11, uh, 21 years ago, what we remember on this day, destruction and chaos that came about because religion was abused. That's what happened. Religion taken off course. Religion that had been manipulated and used for destructive reasons. The faith, the Muslim faith, is actually one of peace, but it can be distorted 
much like all other religions. We often, there's too often people think, oh, uh, Muslim faith, no, no, that is violence. But it's not. It's not. It's extremism that we have seen and then we make it like the whole thing. Which is often how other people have experienced Christianity. They've seen extreme abuses of it and they think that's all Christianity or how all Christians are. But on this day, there were over 3,000 lives lost because of religious extremism, violence and chaos. And it's not okay. And so we remember and honor the lives lost, but the families, we think of them. We think of the, the firefighters and policemen that act, acted on that day and gave themselves to rescue. It's a heavy, heavy day. So humility, awe and wonder, central, foundational to this. So this is the context when this next movement happens. In the midst of that, kids, and you experience this thing that Jesus has just shown and said, this is the kind of posture we ought to have. Then, Matthew 19, 16, within this, a man approaches Jesus, comes up to him and asks, teacher, very respectfully, what good thing must I do to get eternal life. In the midst of Jesus making a statement on the humble posture of those who live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, there is this question. What are the prerequisites to getting eternal life? So we're going to begin by looking at Jesus's initial response and then dig into their conversation from there. So verse 17, Jesus responds, why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. I hope just in that, your curiosity level is just flashing, going off, climbing, whatever, like, huh, fascinating response. And now, uh, one of the leading scholars in first century Hebrew context, David Biven, he notes how the translated Hebrew of this text uh, would read like this. Best reads this way. Why do you refer to a deed as good? Call only one thing good, the Torah. You know how to obtain eternal life. Keep the commandments how it better reads and seems to make a bit more sense in this. He's asking this guy a question and that's the thing that is, we begin with, Jesus responds to this man's question with a question, which is a very common way of the rabbis. Jesus' question, what he asks of this man though, circles the intention of anyone who is doing mitzvot. Go ahead and say mitzvot. Mitzvot means commandments. And so they said they would do mitzvot, do mitzvot. That was a part of their culture. And he's like, let's circle the intention. Why are you doing mitzvot? Because doing good then, it's not viewed as pulling the lever on the kingdom of heaven slot machine. That's not how they understood it to be. Or Jesus certainly would teach that's not what this is about. Living the commandments is a guide for participating in or practicing the kingdom of heaven now. Do you see the massive distinction there? 
It's not pulling a lever to get. It's participating in and practicing the kingdom of heaven now. Are you with me? This will make more sense as the conversation goes. Uh, Verses 18 and 19. Which ones? So Jesus says, "You, you know what it is. Then practice, do, live out the commandments. So this guy naturally says, great, which ones? Why? Because there are 613 commandments in Torah. 613. Each one of those, by the way, have all this nuance. And the rabbis would say, okay, so here's this one, and there are five things underneath it. Because they would ask, well, how do you live it out? So there are 613. So this guy goes, great, which ones are we doing? Jesus replies, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. What Jesus does here is really brilliant and it's getting at the heart of the full life. Jesus leads the conversation into what we commonly refer to as the Ten Commandments. And so I want to just paraphrase those so we can take a look to see what Jesus was doing here. So here's a paraphrase of that from Deuteronomy 5, 7 to 20. First one, no other gods beside God or in front of God is how it would read. No images of or forms of idols. Two, do not misuse the reputation or name of God. Observe the Sabbath. These are the first four, and they have to do with loving God or our relationship with God. The first four are about that. Jesus mentioned none of those which we'll get into. Then the next five are what Jesus listed in the 10, and he adds actually not one of the 10 commandments, but he adds Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself, because that would be a summation of the five he did give. Because the five he did have to do with our relationship with our neighbor or with other people. So he sums it up by saying, love your neighbor as yourself. You saw that in the five that he said. So, doing good to get God or obtain or inherit eternal life is not what the commandments are about. Because they deal with loving and honoring God, which leads to emulating God toward others. You're not trying to get to God. You're trying to honor and love God by practicing them. So, without love of the divine, this discussion is barren. Start there. Which is assumed by this young man wanting eternal life. When he speaks of eternal life, he is actually talking about, first, loving of God. So that begins there. Are we we tracking? We're good, right? Okay. Now, Jesus intentionally left one command out. Intentionally left one command out, which we know as number 10, and it's Deuteronomy 5.21. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not set your desire on your neighbor's house or land, his male and female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Jesus doesn't mention this one. He led right up to it. So in classic rabbinical form, he leaves it out and allows the student to finish the movement in their mind. He stops and says, will you finish it? There's a question within him stopping. Basically, are you going to finish where this is heading? And why does he do this? Because it gets at the heart of what this young man is struggling with. 
Brilliant. He leads right up to it. He goes, I get what your problem is. I'm going to lead right up to it and stop. So then the conversation continues. Matthew 19, 20 to 22. All these that you listed, Jesus, I've kept them. The young man said, what do I still lack? What, do I, what am I missing? Jesus answered, if you want to be complete, maybe your translation says perfect. We understood back in the Sermon on the Mount that that word means complete, whole, filling in holiness, which is Christ in us is how we would say it, but it's God with us. This is to be complete then. If you want to be complete, you young man, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then, Come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. This young man asked, what do, I, what do I lack? What am I missing? Now here's the thing that is really helpful. The rabbis midrash, they offer commentary on the Ten Commandments. Now what the rabbis do in their midrash is so helpful for us here. What the rabbis say about the Ten Commandments are, if you follow, if you walk out, if you live the first nine commandments, the tenth one is a gift. It's a promise. Because if you follow the first nine commandments, you wouldn't want anyone else's life. You see how that is? Because the last one is covenant, and he's like, actually, if you live into these, the rabbis say, if you live into these nine, you'd be like, please. I wouldn't want anyone else's life. Contentment, joy, great. I'm not, I, I'm content, I'm happy. This gift that God has given me, that 10th one, it's a gift, it's a promise because I wouldn't want anyone else's life. It's really helpful. Why? Because what this man is lacking or missing, he sees life, and this is huge, as a competition and acquisition. He sees life as competition and specifically an acquisition. For him, life is about striving to get more. This man's barrier is a status found in accumulating material wealth. Jesus, he could have easily just said to this guy, when, when he's like, what do I lack? What do, what, he could have said, don't covet. But Jesus wanted to make sure that he has this conversation and does all of this so that, he get, that this guy will get it at the heart level. And the guy did, because he walks away, what? Sad, heartbroken, head down. He gets it. Because the cost of following Jesus for him, for entering eternal life, or entering life, the full life, as it would be, he's like, that's upsetting. That's too much for me. From this point in the conversation, Jesus is now going to turn and have a discussion with his students about the difficulty of clinging to material wealth and following Jesus. The disciples are aghast. They're completely blown away at Jesus' statement about how the wealthy are going to really struggle with trying to follow him while clinging to what they have. And he uses a picture, a metaphor. He says, it'd be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. A camel would be the largest animal that they would be aware of or that'd be kind of in their day-to-day -day life. And so he gives a camel a picture of a small hole in a needle. And he says, yeah, imagine that camel going through there. You're in your head, you go, that's impossible. Then Jesus says, great, it is impossible for man, but nothing is impossible for God. 
and they are blown away. And so the disciples are like, what? How can it be, they think, if it's not about social status, prestige, and wealth, if these are not the top of the list of attributes, then they ask in verse 25 this question. If that's not, then who then can be saved? Who then can be saved, the disciples asked Jesus. Do you see how we went from eternal life, then who can be saved? Now, with this additional question, we can hunker down and was commonly thought of today as it pertains to these things that all hold hands and all kind of mean the same thing. Uh, kingdom of heaven, eternal life, being saved. These all are kind of holding hands. These statements are, are they kind of be, they interchange like you could, how they use them in the New Testament. So when we get at this, the dominant thinking today, the dominant thinking we'll get at by looking at a New York Times best-selling book and we'll read a snippet of it to get an idea of what the dominant thinking is when we think of saved, eternal life, heaven, that whole thing. Ready? Here we go. Heaven is somewhere you believe in. It's a beautiful place where you can sit on soft clouds and talk to other people who are there. At night, you can sit next to the stars, which are the brightest of anywhere in the universe. If you're good throughout your life, then you get to go to heaven. When your life is finished here on earth, God sends angels down to take you up to be in heaven, up to heaven to be with him. And this within the commentary, the person says, and grandma is alive in me. Most important, she taught me to believe in myself. She's in a safe place with the stars, with God and the angels. She is watching over us from up there. I want you to know, says the heroine to her great-grandma, that even though you are no longer here, your spirit will always be alive in me. What's Heaven is the name of the book by Maria Shriver, a.k.a. the former Mrs. Arnold Schwarzenegger. New York Times, massive selling. People, this is the dominant thinking when they think of heaven. First, what we see in that description is that heaven is somewhere else, sometime else, where the formerly living reside. Secondly, heaven is very esoteric. It's floaty, hazy, and disembodied. Angels travel from up there to down here, scooping people up to carry them to the clouds, which is where God and the angels are. So God is not here. God is somewhere else, sometime else. So heaven is somewhere else, sometime else, for someone else. Earth seems to function like a stiff, itchy chair at the Secretary of State where we sit and wait. Do you see what happened here? Uh, welcome to the faith. Take a number, please. Is that, that would be evangelism in this state. Hey, Welcome to the faith. Uh, take a number and get comfortable. Is that the story? What about purpose and meaning? Is, is this life just a waiting game until we can get to the real life, which is only after death and seemingly void of any physicality and materiality? Is the divine simply a choir director in the clouds? 
Are we simply humans slugging away through each week, buying cars and houses and accruing debt, and giving a third of our lives to attaining a temporary education that is irrelevant after we float off into the eternal weekend in the clouds, where those who sing poorly will receive new voices in order to form a, an angelic choir? Is that what this is about? If so, if so, this is largely why many of my friends and neighbors have said they are not interested in a conversation about God, faith, or church. Maybe you felt that same thing or you know people who offer similar sentiments. Many of these people have said they hunger for more. More purpose, more meaning, more life before death which somehow mysteriously participates in life after death. And I trust that there is much, much more. So I think it's beyond time we revisit our understanding of eternal life. So we'll start with our good friend, Tom Wright, N.T. Wright. Wish me happy birthday this week. That was very kind of him. Uh, anyways, N.T. Wright says this, so helpful. Many Christians grow up assuming that whenever the New Testament speaks of heaven, it refers to the place to which the saved will go after death. But the language of heaven in the New Testament doesn't work that way. God's kingdom in the preaching of Jesus refers not to post-mortem destiny, not to our escape from this world into another one, but to God's sovereign rule coming on earth as it is in heaven. The roots of the misunderstanding go very deep, not least into the residual Platonism, Plato. Most of what we just read, that's all from Plato that has infected whole swaths of Christian thinking and had misled people into supposing that Christians are meant to devalue this present world and our present bodies and regard them as shabby and shameful. Surprised by Hope, probably the most impactful book for me as it pertains to life and death and after life after death, that whole thing, N.T. Wright, so brilliant. For us to get our heads around a larger, bigger thing, we need to recall the words that Jesus gave several chapters ago in what is known as his seminal teaching, the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 6, verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what he teaches his students to pray. Live into this. We pray, God, your will be done, not later, now, here as it's done in the realm in which it's complete. Now, several years ago, an interviewer mentioned to Bono, the lead singer of U2, how he heard him say that he holds a daily practice of saying the Lord's Prayer. Bono had mentioned this particular part of that prayer. That line grabs him. So the interviewer said, why? And Bono's response was this, because a lot of people are happy with pie in the sky when they die. But I don't think that is our purpose. Our purpose is to bring heaven to earth in the micro as well as the macro. In every detail of our lives, we should be trying to bring heaven to earth. Have the peace that passeth understanding at the center of yourself. But do not be at peace with the world because the world is not a happy place for most people living on it. And the world is more malleable than you think. 
and we can wrestle it from fools. Yeah. This holds hands really well what John says has Jesus teaching in his gospel account. John chapter 5, verse 24. Very truly I tell you, Jesus says, whoever, whoever hears my word and trusts him who sent me has eternal life. Now, real quick, has, hold, the Greek is hold possession of. That person holds possession of eternal life. That word life in the Greek is zoe. Go ahead and say zoe. There are other words for life. In the Greek, there are multiple words for life. We translate it as life. But there's another word that means circumstantial, temporary. Then there is zoe, which is bigger, deeper, wider. And so he's giving a different thing, and he's like, the person who trusts in the one, trusts in the divine, trusts in Jesus the Christ, then holds possession of this eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over to pass over from one place to the next, from death to life, from death to Zoe now. That's how he says that. In Hebrew consciousness, what's really helpful, life and death are much more expansive than breathing and not breathing. In the scriptures, when you hear them talk about life and death, they're not just talking about breathing and not breathing. Moses, anyone recall Moses saying to the people, standing before it, and he says, whoever wants to choose, you have to choose life or death. He's not saying, how many of you want to keep living and how many want to have their breath stopped right now? What he's saying is there is a quality of life that you can step into now by following the way of the divine. They have a bigger understanding. John will write about it in his first, uh, those little three letters in the back of our Bible. He'll talk so much about the wider, deeper meaning of life and death beyond just breathing and not breathing. This transcends this life, but it begins in this life. Are you with me? The fullness of life is something we can step into or cross over into now, which participates in what we call forever. To choose to walk the way of the divine with the divine is to step out of death into life, which is called eternal life. Of course, if you're like wondering, it is not complete now. You can taste it, you can smell it, you can bump up against it. Sometimes the veil gets transparent, if you will. You've had moments where you're like, oh, everything in you is humming, and you're like, gosh, this is like a taste of heaven. Of course. You've bumped up against it, you felt it, you experienced it, you've run up against it. Is it complete now? No, Jesus said it's not complete yet. This type of language we find the participating in that trans now transcends now, though, is found in this conversation with the man, this young man. We'll go back up and go again, 16 to there. Just then, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there is only one who is good. If you want to what? Is that the question the guy asked? Jesus knows, though, do you want to enter life now? And then he gets into what this guy's hang-up is. But here's the thing. Apparently, Jesus doesn't find this man's wealth as a way forward. Instead, he knows it is in the way of him moving forward. And Jesus names it. 
He helps him get there himself. Instead of Jesus being like, I'll just tell you what your problem is, I'll help you get there and name it for yourself. This is in the way. Jesus knows this wealthy man is not asking him, hey, will you hold a ticket at will call in a later place called heaven? He's not asking that, which is why Jesus responds to him by saying, well, if you want to enter life, Jesus then offers a statement about the present. The next slide, I think, yeah, Jesus offers a statement about the present. He speaks about a first thing that participates in an eternal thing, which involves the renewal of all things. Come on! That's what it is. We step into it now. We start participating now in something that goes on. So that when, whenever this other full dimension of heaven isn't so much like, ah, it's overwhelming. It's, oh, this is what I began. This is what I started. This was what I tasted. And now I see it in its fullness. It's less shock and more, oh, now the, the lights have been completely turned on. Oh, now the volume has been turned to 11. Sweet. Jesus understands the commandments simply act as a guide for cultivating a certain kind of life. Here and now, rather than rules to follow for gaining a prize in the future, somewhere else life. Which is why this conversation has Jesus highlighting the one thing that this particular guy is hung up on clinging to his great wealth and how he's looking for more rather than being free to live a life of generosity. That's that guy's problem. The brilliance of the story is not found in Jesus prescribing a formula for going somewhere else, sometime else. Rather, we see Jesus meeting this guy exactly as he is and he invites him to enter into an eternal way of living now, this kind of life has many names in the scripture, and it's been named a number of things. New creation, new humanity, Paul talks about. The age to come, the Hebrew prophets often talk about, which is the messianic age. When the Messiah is enthroned, there will be a movement into this eternal life, new creation, new humanity. For example, ready? I'm just going to give it to you. Isaiah, the Hebrew prophet, speaks of God doing a new thing, which will be good news for the poor, recovery of sight for the blind, freedom for the incarcerated and oppressed, because oppression of the poor is a mark of the old humanity. Are you with me? Isaiah also speaks of weapons of war being recycled into farm equipment, because the new humanity will not study war anymore. War is another mark of the old humanity. Ezekiel, the prophet, speaks of a new heart of flesh replacing the old heart of stone because the hardening of hearts in the name of self-interest and in group interest is a mark of the old humanity. Are you with me? Amos, the, the prophet Amos, speaks of a time when a river of justice will roll down from the heights, filling the lowest places first. Because a concentration of power and wealth at the top is the mark of the old humanity. 
Micah speaks of religion being known for doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly, there it is, before the divine, before God. Because hoarding power, loving money, and walking with racial, religious, or national pride are marks of the old humanity. When it's small, when it's me, when it's just ours, old humanity. The prophets cried out, sang out, and ruthlessly called out the old humanity while painting a picture of the new humanity, which Jesus embodies and lives out. When Jesus talked about the kingdom of heaven, he talked about living in this particular way, which he inaugurated in his day in the resurrection, which is what the commands invited people into, a generous life that brings healing and wholeness to the world today, a new creation, a new humanity, beginning in and through the resurrected Jesus, our center Everything, hopefully everything we do as a community, everything I teach, centers on the life, death, resurrection, new life of Jesus the Christ, inviting us to walk with him into this new humanity, now that will be complete later. This is what Jesus announces to his disciples. The discussion continues. Verse 28 of Matthew 19. Jesus said to them, his disciples, Truly I tell you what? At the what? Renewal of all things. This is what Jesus speaks about. The renewal of all things. When the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, when he's enthroned, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, the complete Jewish Bible translate that. I tell you that in the regenerated world. It's really helpful that we get that understanding that it is the renewal of all things. In Revelation, when you read about uh, a new heaven and a new earth, they're qualitative. That word new means qualitative, not quantitative. They're not building a Death Star somewhere else. It is regenerated, renewed, restored, reconciled. From here, Jesus is going to tell a parable. We don't have time to get into it. Often called the workers in the vineyard. Summarized. In it, people begin to work for a landowner at different times of the day. Some in the early morning, some mid-morning, some afternoon, and finally some at 5 p.m. In the evening, probably around 6, maybe a little after 6 p.m. is what it would be, the owner stops them, work's done for the day, now let's pay you. He begins with those who started at 5 p.m. and he pays them a denarius, which is a day's wage. Then those who started earliest in the morning come up and it says in the text they expect that they will get paid more. And they don't. And they grumble about it. Why? Because I would say this. The kingdom of heaven is not, not about meritocracy and fairness. It's about mercy and generosity. Oh, good heavens for us Americans. That is brutal. What? It's not about meritocracy and fairness. It is not fair. Grace is not fair. Grace is not fair. Mercy is not fair. Mercy means you get, you're getting what you don't deserve. God says, no, I love you. 
You've messed up, but I love you and I embrace you and I welcome you home. You don't deserve it. Mercy. It's not fair. And we sit there and sweat because we read, read that parable. Jesus finishes that whole thing about eternal life and then he tells this parable about, well, yeah, I know, but why do you think you get more? What did we just talk about? It's not about earning, winning, buying. Nope, not about meritocracy. Fairness. Oh, we could just sit with that for mm, 35 years. This is about an invitation to walk in the kingdom of heaven now. It's a life that participates in the renewal of all things, which was inaugurated in the resurrection of Jesus. This is about participation, not simply sitting, watching, and waiting. That sounds miserable. When I was a kid, that's what I struggled so much with. As a kid, I used to ask our elders at our church, now what? I said the prayer you told me to say. I asked Jesus into my heart. Not sure if he's there. He's a carpenter. I'm sure he can dig his way in or something. Now what? Now what? The response over and over. Stop it, kid. Stop with the questions. You, when you get to an adult, you'll figure it out. Elder of the church, stop. You'll just figure it out later. I want, I, just a kid, I remember going, now what? Now what? Relax. Go sit in your itchy, scratchy chair and wait. And I thought, how is that? What? What? It's about participation now. So the question for each one of us, that's, what's your barrier to participating in the kingdom of heaven? What's your barrier? What's your hang-up? What's that sin? What's that thing in the way for you stepping in and living into this now? What's your barrier? Name it. Name it. Name it. Jesus invites us to do maintenance of the heart so we are free to trust and follow Jesus. Unencumbered. Unhindered. He has done away with that that gets in the way. Will we trust? Will we step into? Will we begin to walk in that now? Oh, I have so much more, but I'm stopping right there. Because I want to create some space. I want to have a little bit of room anyways for questions. Because maybe for you, you're like, great, good, fine. Yeah, I totally, I was on board. I read Surprised by Hope and Dallas Willard's Divine Conspiracy backwards and forward, and I feel really good about all this different, great, 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 great. Or maybe you're like, hold on, wait a minute, what? So space for questions in the midst of that. Great question. Uh, the question is, what does the, how do the scriptures speak of the soul, if you will? Um, uh, the soul, so the, the, the deeper part of us, the other part of us, if you will. And then how does that compare to like Greek philosophy or Greek thought on that? It's a good question. Uh, in the Hebrew, the word is nefesh. Go ahead and say nefesh. Uh, and in the scriptures, there is uh, a psalm that you refresh my nefesh, is how it would be, you refresh my soul. But the whole thing is that which is deepest within us. The thing is, the Hebrew people didn't understand there wasn't body, soul, separate, integrated. 
integration. They understood the physical world is an echo of the inside. So there was all of this. Greek philosophy ripped them apart. Platonism, Aristotle, they talked about the two being separate. They talked about the soul um, disembodied, floating away, moving away. That's, how, that's Greek philosophy. That's Platonism that we saw in that quote. That actually is the separation. Jesus in resurrection then, what is Jesus in resurrection appears? He looks different and similar. We can't quite get there, but you're like, no, he's got a body. And what's he say to his disciples? Look, there is, a, there is a picture of the old scars. Touch, he says. Oh, and then he says, I'm really hungry. What? Anybody got some fish? Material, materiality, physicality, hunger in the resurrection? So these are knit together. You get a new, Paul will talk about a new body, whatever that may be. Jesus talks about this newness, but it has some, some semblance of the old, so they were together in, in saying that. Soul, understanding that. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your nefesh. It's all one. We do it with everything that we are. So they're knit together. Pulling them apart is the Greek. That's, we got that from Greek philosophy. That's the Greek world, is to pull them apart. Which is why um, I appreciate the translations of the Bible where they talk about a sinful nature and then uh, spirit rather than the flesh and spirit. Because then that tells us flesh is bad, spirit is good, rather than sinful nature. There is within us a sinful nature, a way of going off course, but if we say it, and that's the body, then Jesus is like, gosh, I... I guess you don't want to have anything to do with the entirety of the Gospel of John. Because the Gospel of John begins with the word became what? Which is an affirmation of the goodness of flesh. So when we buy into Greek philosophy, we actually have to throw out the, the Gospel of John as well as kind of the whole idea of incarnation. So if that is some sort of response, hopefully that touches on that a bit. But that's how they would view it, togetherness, the unity of that. And in fact, in the beginning, when it says that the heavens and earth were, were one, heaven and earth was one. In Genesis 1 and 2, heaven and earth are one. They're not separate. They're one. And it's always about the putting back together of the one, which I think is really helpful. Great question. Good question. Um, the question is about the great cloud of witnesses, or, uh, which is referred to in the book of Hebrews. Uh, speaking of the great cloud of witnesses that are like cheering us on, encouraging us, and the idea of those that came before it. And then there is like uh, in Hebrews, they even kind of give a faith, like hall of faith, hall of fame, faith people, all those from the past, which I would argue within that too is when it's announced in the Hebrew scriptures, I am the God of Abraham. 
excuse me, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, at that time when it's being said or written or whatever you want to, within that, those, those people are dead. And God, is the living, uh, uh, God is the God of the living, not the dead. So I would argue, or would say argue, I'm, I'm not one to argue, but I would at least submit to the idea of that thin veil, if you will, where God is with us and we bump up and we feel. I mean, I hope there is an experiential, that's what the scriptures talk about, knowing of God. Those that have gone before us, some, some echo of encouragement, some bumping up against, sure. What, how, I would think so. And again, the way the scriptures speak of it, is there is encouragement. There is almost like, yeah, our hearts can hear an echo. I would hope our hearts, our, our, our very being is being encouraged, being drawn along by that which is beyond just this, that is more. I would say, and, and that's the writer of Hebrews, where they are kind of saying, yeah, those that are come before us, they're cheering you on. They want you to keep going. They're with you. You probably can sense them, feel that. Have you ever... And here's where I would even, have you ever stepped into a place, gone into a physical building, gone into a location, a city? I don't know what it is. And what do we say? This city has a soul. Have you ever, you know, that, that terminology? Oh, man, I get, a, I get a really heavy feeling in this space or whatever. What is that? What is that? More. There's something more going on here. Could be an oppressive spirit. We would say spirit, oppressive something in here. Or there's something bigger, wider, more. There's, there's something else more. Sure. I, I hope that something in there, uh, touching up, I would say so. Yes, yeah, so, so the question is, how, how would we respond to some, some semblance of, but they didn't say the prayer, or they are a part of some other religion, so immediately, or just we begin with, they're going to hell. Um, uh, let's go the first one, saying the prayer. Uh, I, to read between the lines, the prayer, I would, as would assume when we say the prayer, we know over the last mm, 75 years, maybe-ish, somewhere in there, that the prayer is asking Jesus into our heart, asking for forgiveness, this kind of whole thing. That prayer, if you will, is not in the Bible. Um, that is something we've constructed. Um, the understanding of uh, confessing, admitting to of living off course or whatever that, putting your trust in Christ, receiving what we would say is trusting, receiving that forgiveness. And so that's part of it is even asking for forgiveness is more on us because on the cross, the cross happened. It doesn't happen, correct? So forgiveness has been given. The question is, will we receive it? So we did that, understandably. People tried to consolidate and put it into some prayer, as, but that prayer is not magical. That prayer is not a lever you pull that gets... And again, what is the, the point there to what? Go to... And again, we've made this thing after life. We begin there. Which then, even with hell, why on earth would we start with whatever someone believes, thinks now, that we would go, well, you're going to hell. Where's the hope in that? 
Where's the good news in that? Why would we begin telling them that they're out rather than saying you're loved? Because my understanding is that's where the whole thing begins. You are loved, you are forgiven, and whether or not you want to receive that, step into that, that's your choice, that's your invitation. But let me begin by saying you're created in the image of God. So the res I, my response to, to, to either of those, like you're out because you didn't say a prayer we made up recently, um, or you're of some other religion, so you're out. Why would you begin with you're out? Out what? You're here now. You're invited to the next right step, and I'm starting there. And, by the way, threatening people with hell, not, when you get into that even, Jesus, in the New Testament, the word hell where it shows up is almost completely used by Jesus. And Jesus, by the way, in his conversations went around the idea of hell. We don't have time to get into that. But I will say this. In his conversations on in using the word hell, do you know who he's talking to all of the times? Religious people. You do not find in the scripture Jesus going up to, say, some other religion or some other whatever it is and saying, you, uh, you're, you're, you're going to go to hell. You are going to hell because of, instead he's talking with religious people who are trying to maybe be, um, well, they're, they're just problematic. They're, they're crusty of heart. I don't know. And he's like, eh, you're in danger of the flames of hell. Hey. So, I, I don't think any of that is helpful to begin with that. I understand the inviting people to trust Christ. I hope we do that every day, all the time, within all of life. We're inviting that in some way, shape, or form. Um, but beginning with what someone is not, or that someone is out, is a poor, my opinion, is a poor place to start doesn't usually draw someone closer. It usually goes that way. I hope that's at least a response. Could you differentiate between what you just said to Nicodemus of what you have to say and what it is that we have to Sure. Uh, so the question is um, kind of comparing, if you will, or contrasting or comparing uh, Nicodemus, when Jesus interacts with him in chapter 3 of God, John's gospel, versus this guy, what are some of those differences? Nicodemus was a religious elite, and he came to Jesus at night, interesting, at the hidden, um, but he comes, he's very interested, and Jesus says, unless you're born from above, um, born again, depending your translation again, what he's getting, what he's getting at, though, is to say, because they get into some ancestor talk, if you will, and he's like, you don't just, you don't earn it, you don't win it. It's not about, the, again, the rules is what he's getting at a lot with Nicodemus. He understands his hang-up is the rules. This guy's hang-up specifically is wealth, is, um, is clinging to, is kind of about accomplishing. Nicodemus is, though, hey, I've done the education thing. I'm about, as, I'm as high as you can go on the education ring. I've memorized the, the stuff and I can live this stuff out, and he's like, you're missing the heart. Unless you're born from above, is, a lot of that language is, the understanding is, unless you are walking, knitted to, in relationship with, some of the language we might use today, with God, with the divine, unless you're doing that, again, the rules aren't getting you 
and he wouldn't say in, but he's like, you're missing it. Unless you have humility, you're arrogant with the rules. And he says, born from above, again, it gives, there is the imagery of infancy, of humility. So he's talking to him saying, it's got to be a heart posture of humility. And it's kind of this um, innocence of awe and wonder. That's a lot of what's going on with Nicodemus. And walk that out further. Um, really quite something. You know, I, I hope that helps. Like one guy is hung up on gaining, earning, winning, more, more, more. Nicodemus says, I've already got all the education. I know all the rules, so I'm in, right? Um, maybe another question or two. I think we can kick it around. I think we're okay. We're spun. I love it. It's great, yeah. What do you mean? So the question is, is there an elevator pitch? Is language an elevator pitch to someone says, oh, yeah, heaven in the clouds, some after death, whatever it may be, and they do that. What's a way of having that conversation in a, in a, a minute, Elevator pitches and the time you go from whatever. Um, in full honesty, I'm going to push the button that stops the elevator. <laughs> in that sense, I know myself. Like, <laughs> so I will say that to begin. Um, because that's a tough one. I would, though, hope, uh, and my wife and I were just talking this yesterday because she had this interaction yesterday. Little, I mean, it was different in a sense, but it was around Bible and stuff, is questions. Where did, specifically someone who is antagonistic and asking questions, though, and asking questions, or saying something you're like, cringe, like, ooh. Where I go, that's really rough theology. That's taking down, uh-oh. How did you get that? Where did you get that from? Where did you learn that? You didn't come up with that yourself, so it was more questions. Great, tell me more. Where did you get that? So heaven is in the clouds. Why do you say that? And hopefully to get them to fill in some of the blanks, where did they get that from? Because again, that idea, you're not finding uh, Maria Shriver's description of heaven in the scriptures. You have a Three, uh, you have a way of the scriptures that speak of up there, here, down there. Why? In their world, they had not been to the moon. To them, up is where water comes from, rain, sun, goodness comes from above. What do you do with someone who's dead? You bury them where? In the ground. So to them, death is down. This is their understanding. We are here now. So good is up. Bad is down, that was their thing. Then what you have is you have hymns that are written that go up good, go up, we want to go up, 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 up. Ooh, we don't want to go down, down is bad. So you have hymns that have that language. The thing is, we know there's more. So we, I, look to the, I look to the mountains. There is so much language that is up language. Understand it, it's about reverence, it's about all, but they're not saying we think God is just right up there a little bit. 
Because somehow the, all those trips to the moon and in outer space, they just keep missing God. They keep missing heaven. Somehow they go around it or whatever. And when we've dug down, we've yet to find that guy with the trident and the pointy tail and all of our digging. But it was just language of the Bible. So my, I want to just flesh out where do you get that? Where do you get, oh, interesting, heaven is in the clouds, is that, where do you get that? And even I, I've certainly had questions to someone's like, I can't, you know, heaven, and they just speak of being with grandma, and I'm like, that's stunning. My dad, I, I lost my dad before I turned four years old. When I think of being united and no more tears and all of that renewal, reconciliation, restoration, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. But often I always go, yeah, well, tell me more about this that you look forward to. And oftentimes they, they just will speak of that and then they will, there's no God in their heaven. So then I'm like, wow, what about God? What do you mean? I'm like, all you've talked about is you. Not, and I try, and it's quick. I know it sounds, but it's not trying to be insensitive, but it's like, what more? What bigness? Like, so I don't, I, you know me, elevator pitch, my goodness. I'm hitting pause on that thing. I'm asking, can we go to the, can we go six floors up? How about we go to the top, see what's up there, and then we'll go to your floor. But, yeah, because I want to know where did you get this from. I want to know where they're coming from. So... Good, I just love the questions. Love, 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 love. Any? In that place. Yeah, the question is, uh, what about the person who um, didn't do, say, the belief stuff, if you will, um, and then on their deathbed starts contemplating the bigness of life or whatever, or all of that, and then is there hope, is, if I get there, is there hope for that? Yeah. Hope is central to our faith. Hope is central. Um, I, I would say, now again, there, there are some larger questions, but anyone who's like, I, whenever in their life that they're like contemplating, thinking there must be more, oh, I, I, I hope there's more, I'm hungering for more, that our response would be, oh, I bless you, God. Something within them, it, there's an appetite, there's a growling of the heart, uh, beautiful, I'll take it, love it, great, you want more. And again, because I think there is more. So this isn't all there is, uh, if you will. So I, I, I would certainly, if someone is pinging towards that, no matter when that is, yep. Because again, if not, if not, I'll play the other card, if not, why, where would we get that? I guess that would be my question. Why would we say no? Because they didn't have enough time to do some stuff that we think they're supposed to, again, accomplish, do? Uh, 
someone says, more, there's, there's more. I trust that more, I want that more, I'm hungry for that more, I say, I bless you, God. That's, that's how I would respond. I'm grateful, I bless you, God. What are you seeing? What are you hearing? What are you... I've, I've sat with people on their deathbed sharing things where you're like, whoa. I'm seeing, I'm feeling, I'm experiencing, and you just go, keep going, I bless you, God. This is amazing. I feel like I got a front row seat while you have one foot into something more. What a gift. Okay. Feel good? All right. Uh, we, get, we have lunch. It's part of we knew we could do this. We have lunch uh, for those that want to stay and participate in the Teams meeting and all of that. Questions, if you have more questions. Uh, I hope you have so many more questions. I have a million. Uh, if you, you know, and write them down feel free to send them in or whatever. Again, this was just meant to cultivate and, and to get things started. To me, it should be a conversation starter anyways. So even that, like elevator pitch, maybe an elevator pitch is, I've got a bunch of questions. And they'd be like, oh, sounds like we should get coffee. Sounds like we should spend more time together. Yeah, 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 because I have a lot of questions. So uh, by the time we get to floor three here, I'm, we're not even going to get anywhere. So how about coffee? Uh, maybe that's my elevator pitch. Uh, how about uh, that? Um, anyways, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. Um, this, real quick, I will say, has changed everything for me. Uh, I did a writing a number of years ago. It's an editorial mess. I hope to finish it up. It's the title I gave it is, Heaven Ruined My Life. It's the name of this book that I had been working on. And the, re the whole thing was, I grew up saying, I grew up being taught that heaven is elsewhere after death. Then, this whole thing is in the church I grew up in, say this prayer, get out of there, sit and wait, just stop asking questions. And then when I came across eternal life, the kingdom of heaven, the way in which Jesus taught, invited us into participating now in that which goes on. When all of a sudden that hit me at 19, 20 years old, everything started to crumble of what I knew, and it ruined my nice life of religiosity. It ruined the trajectory where I could just mail it in. This was for me, that was my experience. It's like, oh, great. I just And all of a sudden, it's like, oh, there's more. And it's now. And I get to participate in it. And actually, the giddy-up that you often experience of me happened then, in that experience, of waking up and going, oh, I see God as like that spike cartoon, the Looney Tunes, you know, the little dog and the bulldog, and the one that goes, what are we going to do today? What are we going to do today, Spike? What are we going to do today? All of a sudden, I became that. God, what are we going to do today? What are you up to? What are you teaching? What are you doing? What are you doing today? Can I participate? Where can we go? What are we doing now? That happened when heaven collided with earth in my heart, and it changed everything. It ruined my religiosity, but it gave me life in so many ways. So, someday, someday I'll find some editor that will be able to put some things together and, and actually take it and make it good. And maybe it'll find some daylight. Um, I'd love to pray. Then we should sing uh, so we can reset, recenter, or even just express hearts of joy and gratitude. Gracious God, I bless you for your bigness, your love, your grace, your mercy.
your forgiveness offered to all of us, poured out for all of us, your invitation to follow you now, begin now. God, your invitation to walk with you now. Oh, you love us. You walk with us. You are here, and you're inviting us to go with you to the more. What that looks like, how that looks, how that functions after breathing, I have no idea, and I just trust that it's good. You are good. So I bless you for breathing life into us and inviting us to your more, giving us a guide, giving us a way, giving us such a perfect example in Jesus the Christ, walking it out and showing us and walking with us in that. I bless you, God. I bless you, God. I bless you for the questions and the hungry hearts. I bless you for all of it. It's a gift. May you continue as you do, stir in us this hunger, desire, in the wonder and awe that is you. I pray this in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen.